Hi, everyone. John Donvan here with another in our series of podcasts where we, the producers and proponents of Intelligence Squared U.S. debates, like to step back and talk about and think about and comment on the quality of discourse in our culture. Just how good are we at talking to each other? Or how bad are we at it? And then there's always the thing we like to talk about, which is the ability to change people's minds, which regular fans of Intelligence Squared U.S. know is a very, very important part of our process. But before we get to that, I do want to share with you that our upcoming fall season is shaping up beautifully. We start in September. And we are going to have some spectacularly star-quality people on our stage, people like writer David Brooks, uh, French critic Bernard-Henri Lévy, General David Petraeus, philosopher Robbie George, and that's just getting started. In a few weeks, we'll be releasing the dates and also the debate topics. But now on to the topic at hand, changing people's minds. Regulars of Intelligence Squared U.S. know that's critical to how our debates work. We have two teams come in. One argues for the motion, one argues against the motion. The audience votes at the end, and we give victory to the team that has changed the most minds in the course of the debate. And it's an amazing thing that every time substantial numbers of people actually do that. Um, Last year, we did give undocumented citizens a path to citizenship. That was the motion. Forty-five percent of the audience changed its mind. That is Amazing. And now people went in both directions, but cumulatively, that was a lot of people willing to let go of their original convictions. And the really interesting thing is after the debates, people spill out onto the sidewalk and I chat with them and people come up and they tell me not only did they change their minds, they were sort of thrilled by the experience and even felt a little bit virtuous because of it. So we put a lot of a lot of emphasis and give a lot of credit to the ability of people to have that kind of flexibility in their thinking. So against that background, the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning columnist David Leonhardt shortly ago publishes a piece called A Summer Project to Nourish Your Political Soul, in which he says to people, go out and find an issue this summer and grapple with it. And then he says, quote, do something really radical. Consider changing your mind, at least partially. And at Intelligence Squared U.S., this went around to all of us, and we said we have got to get David onto this podcast. And so here he is, David Leonhardt. Welcome to Intelligence Squared U.S. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. So I jumped a little bit ahead to your your prescription that people should be willing to change their minds. But you your argument actually starts a little bit before that about what people should do in order to get to the position where they could change their minds, which was actually you were calling for folks to do a lot of homework. Um What was the idea behind your piece? Like a lot of people, I'm quite disturbed by the current presidential administration that we have. And not only that, but if you work in certain circles among policy experts and academics, um, you are surrounded by people who are alarmed by this administration. Obviously, liberals are alarmed, but so are huge numbers of conservatives and moderates as well. And so when I – this is a little bit – this is – I'm going to give you the real way I got to this, which starts in a different place. So when I think about my last few months, thinking about health care, I've written very critically and frequently about the health care bills that would have taken health insurance away from millions of people. What I view as the Trump administration's um, attacks on the rule of law, all these things. I've been writing a series of pretty passionate columns um, and I'm going to keep writing columns like that. But it occurred to me that I found I found a lot of this exhausting the way I think a lot of Americans have found it. And I realized that I wanted to remind myself 
that politics isn't always a simple matter of right and wrong. Um, it's not always a matter of brute force, which side can summon more brute force. There are also lots of nuances. And in my career as a journalist, I've always really enjoyed the nuances. I've sort of run to them. I like it. I like saying to liberals, hey, here's a conservative idea you should take seriously or <laughs> vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was kind of an antidote to the Trump era, which is, of course, not just about President Trump, but it's also about our highly polarized society in which people tend to be surrounded by people who think similarly to them. And we have all these self-reinforcing um, uh, uh, factors that cause us to believe what we believe even more strongly. And so I wanted to step back and, and try to engage with some issues that are actually hard and I'm not sure what I think about and I might change my mind about um, and just really remind myself that that is a huge part of what it means to live in a democracy as well as the more intense political fights that we're witnessing. If, you, if we take the Trump phenomenon out of it, what, what is your diagnosis of the problem? And perhaps you can't take the Trump phenomenon out of it, but is this about our political era primarily or is it about the way we are wired to think? There's been a, a, lot, of, a lot of writing recently on, on that issue that people are dug into their positions and find it impossible to change their minds because it becomes almost a form of tribal betrayal. To, uh, to come up with an opinion different from those that you held before and espoused before and made friends over before. What is your diagnosis of why we are polarized, not merely polarized, but polarized to the point of being unable to talk to each other? I would start by saying that having really intense political fights is perfectly good. <laughs> it's natural. It's unavoidable. It'd be really bad in a democracy if we didn't have them. And the United States has always had them. And sometimes they've been more vicious than they are today, right? Anyone who, who knows the story of Hamilton knows that. Um, anyone who's studied the history of media and all these partisan papers that were just vicious in the 18th century uh, knows that. And so the, the fights are okay. It's how we figure issues out. But it does feel as if we've tipped from a point where you have the normal democratic fighting to something that often feels unhealthy. And I think there are a variety of, of causes. One is the fact that we are just sorted on partisan lines much more rationally than we used to be. I mean, a lot of people who called themselves Republicans and lived in the Northeast really were more ideologically similar to Democrats. And a lot of people who called themselves Democrats in the South were more ideologically similar to Republicans. And we've now sorted ourselves, not only politically, but we've sorted ourselves the way we live. So we're much more likely, it seems, to be surrounded by people who think similarly to us. And as a result, uh, and then, of course, social media. And as a result, we've ended up in this situation in which um, it, people who disagree with us often come to be seen as other, mm -hmm. which I do think is dangerous. I mean, I grew up in a family with with grandparents who who voted only Republican, with one exception, and um, as well as people in the generation below them, my parents' generation, who marched in the 1960s and thought Democrats were too right-wing. And these were all people who loved each other and sometimes talked about politics and sometimes didn't. But I think it's important to remember that just because you disagree about issues doesn't mean that the person you disagree with is an evil human being. Um, and I think it's important to try to dial down some of the, the heat around these democratic disagreements that we now have. In your column, I had the strong sense that you were addressing Trump opponents. I mean, I, you're, you're, you're pretty much explicit about it. You, you, to quote you, you say, by all means, Trump's opponents should continue to fight, but there is also a quieter step to, to, that's worth taking no matter your views. 
um, for the sake of nourishing your political soul. But there you address Trump opponents. Do do you have an audience for this column among people who are Trump supporters? Oh, I think so. And I wanted to address both, but I wanted to make sure that Trump's opponents didn't think I was only talking to the other side. Mm -hmm. I mean, the New York Times audience includes people of all political persuasions. But if you look at where our subscribers are, they're predominantly in the large metropolitan areas of the country, and those areas are predominantly Democratic-leaning. So clearly our audience leans more left than right, substantially so. Mm -hmm. And so I, I didn't want this to come off as, here's a guide for how you, liberal, can change the minds of those misguided conservatives. I wanted to say that I think this. I think it's also really important um, for liberals to think about, and conservative opponents to Trump, to think about what they may also be wrong about. That this, it's not simply an issue of liberals are right, conservatives are wrong. Now, how can and how can these enlightened liberals convince these Neanderthal conservatives uh, of how to think correctly? That this really should be an open process because the fact is the left has been wrong about significant things. I mean, the left for a long time was not, and arguably today is still not sufficiently respectful of how much better an economic system capitalism is than all of the alternatives. Yes, capital. Capitalism has problems, but boy, nothing has come close. You know, the left spent decades worried that um, our society was going to collapse amidst an overpopulation crisis, um, the population bomb. There's a great book about this called The Bet by the Yale historian Paul Sabin. And so uh, I think the left is wrong about a lot of stuff regarding education today, and the left in turn thinks I'm wrong about it. But I I think that it's just really important not to see this as one side has all the facts and the other doesn't. Anyone who reads my column knows that um, my opinions are not squarely in the center. They are to the left of center. And so I think that Democrats are much closer to the truth on climate change, on inequality policy, on all kinds of, of major policies. But that doesn't mean they're right about everything. And, and they should be humble and open about what they might be wrong about. So how would one go about sorting out the issues in which maybe you need a revisitation, a revisit to the facts and and the issues where, no, it'll be a total waste of time. You know you're right. That's not going to change. And is there a problem with that second – how that second list is put together? Well, so I put on that second list um, uh, whether these bills in front of Congress were good on health care. This was a few weeks before what – Seems as if, although we still don't know, was the final vote. Um, I put on that list is climate change real and man-made. Um, uh, I think those are. Uh, I think the evidence leans overwhelmingly one way on those issues. And I also said, look, if I'm wrong about that, um, and evidence emerges to the contrary, then I'll go back and revisit it. But it's not where I personally am going to start. And so I, for example, among the issues that I listed included abortion. Um, and I'll talk about why in a second. But uh, I understand that there are large numbers of people who really aren't that interested in engaging with the complexities of abortion. They believe um, either that it is a woman's right to um, determine what is going to happen with her own body, which I find to be a very understandable view, and they don't really want to talk about the the other side of the argument. Or they believe um, that a fetus is a life, a view that I also understand, and, and they don't really want to talk about the other side of the argument. 
I myself find abortion to be a really vexing issue. And so for me, it's something that I think is productive to think through. But if you disagree with me, if you think, look, even the way I phrased it here is offensive because of because of where your priorities are, fine, then set abortion aside and turn to an issue um, that you actually find to be more complicated. And, and I, I'm just arguing, don't confuse um, an issue you feel strongly about where you kind of know what you think with an issue that you can devote some time to grappling with. Those are often different issues. A few weeks ago, I was, um, I was hosting a panel in New York City at an event called the World Science Festival, and it's several days of um, panel discussions on a range of topics. And at one point, I was uh, heading a panel where the topic of climate change came up in passing. And I asked the audience, show of hands, how many of you believe that climate change is a man-made phenomenon and is real? And almost all of the audience raised their hands. And then I asked how many people have ever read a book about climate change? And a much smaller percentage of the audience Mm -hmm. raised its hands, which tells me that the portion of the audience that didn't raise its hands formed their opinion most likely second, third, or 17th hand based probably on whom they trust to tell them the truth. So I I think most of those people would say, I believe that the preponderance of science uh, supports the reality of uh, man-made global climate change, and I trust the scientific process. So what I'm getting at there is there's a whole issue of where you go for your sources, and are you recommending – would you recommend that the people who didn't raise their hands challenge themselves, question the trust that they put in in the the experts they believe that they believe in and 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 go do their own reading i would certainly recommend that if you are someone who is deeply worried about climate change um and you have little to no doubt that it is a man-made phenomenon and uh it is going to continue getting worse absent major change in the way we operate i would urge you that when you come across a bit of evidence that pushes the other way. Don't jump to explain it away, right? Mm-hmm. Don't don't jump to say, um, well, clearly that's wrong. M- m- climate change is going to go in waves. And so um, it's not always going to be just marching in one direction. And so I would say you don't want to jump on evidence and wave it away. But I, I wouldn't go so far as to say, look, if you believe climate change is real and man-made, I think one of the most important things you could do is go out and question your own belief on that issue. The, the evidence really is overwhelmingly on one side there. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I wouldn't encourage you to go out and read a book on gravity, right, to re-persuade yourself <laughs> that, in fact, that okay, most objects that tend to be attracted to, <laughs> e- to each other. So I, I think that we all have to make decisions. And um, uh, I, I think that for me, starting on issues other than climate change is is the right way to do this because, boy, there are a lot of issues where I do think there's a lot of real gray area. Is there a basic issue of embarrassment over changing your minds, that, that there's, a, there's the shame of admitting that you were wrong before? Absolutely. And you mentioned this in the beginning, that when people change their minds, they also – afterwards, they say, wow, that felt good. Yeah. What yeah. was the word that you used? I forget. They're exhilarated. They're excited. Thrilled. Yeah. 
yeah, it feels good to change your mind. But that isn't always the first feeling that you have. I mean, it there it is can be embarrassing and even humiliating um, to realize that you were wrong about something. I mean, for me, the thing that I find most humiliating when I look back on and I've changed my mind on is same-sex marriage. Now, much of the country has changed its mind on it as well. Um, but the idea that when I was 20 years old that I was thought that marriage was different from partnerships and all that, mm-hmm. in retrospect, I find it really embarrassing um, uh, uh, because I realize in retrospect that it was basically a prejudiced view that I held. Um, uh, on the other hand, once you come to realize that you are someone with the capacity to acknowledge that you were wrong about something, there is something that is freeing about that um, and that feels quite good about it because it, m- it makes you realize, wait a second, I can now go around and look at all these other problems in the world, not making my decisions based on preconceived notions, but making my decisions on the facts. And that's really exciting. Well, I, I also personally feel you're a journalist and of, of long standing. I'm a journalist of even longer standing. And I'm you know, a generation older than you and, and came out of a tradition, the old, more old-fashioned tradition where you keep yourself out of the stories. You make an, at least you make a serious attempt to uh, – tell both sides of the stories without attitude and um, hope that there's a sense that both sides, if it's a two-sided story, would recognize themselves in your piece. That as a result of that training and exercise and having that bred into my bones, that I as a journalist and perhaps you as a journalist are better equipped actually to hear more than one side and that that's an unusual position, that most people are not uh, – don't don't have that – I don't know if I should call it advantage, but at, at least practice um, – do you do you think I'm onto something in terms of that? And if so, do people need practice in being able to give serious shrift to the other side? So I do think you're onto something, and I've spent the vast majority of my career in that same on that same side of the business, on the news side. I only moved to the opinion side. Boy, less than a year ago, but it feels like longer than that, given what's happened. Um, um, and there are, you know, I'm at the New York Times. The vast majority of people are on the news side, not the opinion side. Um, I do think you learn something really valuable by uh, talking to both sides and asking them, "Why do you think what you think?" I think there are risks there, right? I mean, the classic risk is the false balance risk. Sure. The media was too slow to treat climate change denial. I don't know the right phrase to use it, but it was too slow to say that climate change denial is just not a, a position that has anywhere near the factual basis. As, as not a he said, she said denial. type of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's that's exactly right. And I think one of the other things that's really hard when you ask both sides is it, it is very hard to find a middle ground. So we in the media are trained very well to do the 50-50 story or a version of the 50-50 story where we let each side have their say. We also can get comfortable with stories like climate change where we say, look, I'm sorry, this is not a 50-50 he said, he said story. This is, you know, this is a, a story where the evidence overwhelmingly lines up. We really struggle, though, with stories that might be 80-20 stories, right? Stories where, hey, the preponderance of the evidence lines up over here. And to treat these two arguments as equal really isn't the right way to go. But on the other hand, there's still uncertainty, and we don't know for certain 
that one side is right and the other side is wrong. And almost certainly one side isn't right about everything. We really struggle to find anything in between basically 100 to nothing stories and 50-50 stories. Not to mention not every story is binary. There might be four or five or seven sides to a story as well, depending on the issue. Absolutely. The word polarization has come up a few times in the conversation. And it's interesting to me because uh, in an earlier um, episode of this podcast, one of our guests was former Oklahoma Congressman Mickey Edwards. Um, who has debated with Intelligence Squared. He's a fantastic debater, by the way. But he is also uh, a Republican who is highly concerned about not polarization, he says, but the lack of bipartisanship. And that he actually teaches a course for younger office holders at the Aspen Institute on on working together. But he remarked to me that he doesn't think polarization per se is a problem. He thinks it's natural. And he, he said, you know, Lots of ideas that became mainstream started in a very polarized setting. You mentioned, for example, same-sex marriage. He used the example of universal suffrage, was once seen as a crazy, radical, and highly polarizing idea. But that the, 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 the polls sometimes are where the important ideas come from and where the future is to be found. And I, I just like to have you discuss that. Should do, do we necessarily need to be depressed about this notion of polarization? About having ideas so far apart that it, it it appears there can be no sort of middle ground, no sort of reconciliation, no sort of policy worked out. I'm a big admirer of Mickey Edwards, and I think he's absolutely right about that. That uh, to fool yourself into thinking that the answer to every policy solution lies, lies roughly halfway between. Uh, the positions of the two parties or any two positions is a real mistake for, uh, in part, the reason that you just cited, which is history says otherwise. <laughs> Our successful presidents did not govern most mostly by being great bipartisan conciliators. It's not how Ronald Reagan worked. It's not how LBJ worked. It's not how Barack Obama worked when he was being effective. Um, it's certainly not how Abraham Lincoln or FDR worked. And so... Um, this notion that a bipartisan solution or one that is equally comes from equally from the two parties is always better that's just wrong and it's actually a funny kind of bias that the media has sometimes when you scrape stories what you realize is this is a really biased story and the bias in this story is it's pro bipartisan and anti any idea that comes from only one party mm-hmm. which is kind of a funny accepted bias in the news business it's okay to criticize an idea from coming from just one side and pretending that that somehow that is actually objective um, and so I do I do absolutely agree with that I think It's hard, though, because once you start to accept that historical truth, it becomes very easy to then slip into, well, my side has all the answers and the other side doesn't have any. And the question is, how do we, on the one hand, recognize that the most important ideas, whether it's suffrage, whether it's ending slavery, uh, whether it's the, the notion that everyone should have health insurance, often do come from not the middle. Uh, And yet, we don't want to get to the point where we just feel like, I know all the answers, my opponents don't know any of them, so let's just charge ahead. David, do you think everyone actually can participate in your summer project proposal, go grapple with an issue, study, study it, even before getting to the point of being willing to change your mind, given that some of these issues require... Um, fairly high-level reading and uh, practice at critical thinking. 
And that's just not everybody. I mean, so, some people are ultimately are going to have to get to the point where they, they, they trust an intermediary. Or, or do you think that there's a way for everybody to take on and, and really delve into a topic like, say, immigration, its economic consequences, its history, the, the, the theories that develop around its impact on the country's ability to grow, et cetera? Is everybody able to digest at that level in order to fulfill the exercise that you lay out? I think everybody is. I mean, I'm a, a small D Democrat, and although I realize it has a certain connotation I don't like now, a populist as well. And I think everyone does have that ability in a democracy. I agree with you that different people are going to want to engage with different types of issues. So one thing that I would really encourage people to engage with is how do we help low-income workers? Is the minimum wage the right way to go? Mm -hmm. uh, is the earned income tax credit? Is universal basic income the way to go? There's some new conflicting evidence on, on the effects of a $15 minimum wage. And I would encourage liberals, don't just wave that away and say, well, that study must be wrong. And I would encourage conservatives, don't just say, aha, now we finally have the right study. Conservatives should engage with the many other studies that have suggested that a $15 minimum wage may be okay. Um, so I think that is an issue where, yes, I agree with you. That requires some – probably some history and comfort with um, reading studies or at least description of studies. And I'm not sure that everyone's going to want to do that even if everyone has the capability of doing it. But that's only one kind of issue. I mentioned abortion earlier. I think to grapple with abortion, I don't think you have to go off and read a lot of right. um, regression analyses. I mean abortion is a really stark choice um, and with some really stark – stark trade-offs. And so there, to me, it's about having debates with your friends and your relatives, and, and you say to someone who is pro-life, well, okay, but are you really saying that um, women lose control over their bodies as soon as they become pregnant? And, and how do you grapple with the fact that when a lot of people describe themselves pro-life, um, when they themselves find themselves in the situation or they have a relative who does, um, eh, suddenly their mind changes? And I would say to people who describe themselves as pro-choice, are you really okay with abortion um, a week before a baby is born? And if you're not, where do you draw the line? And how do you feel about the fact that technology means that we are moving toward a time where people are going to say, huh, that baby, that fetus looks as if it may have this flaw, um, so let's terminate the pregnancy. That's sort of chilling. And that whole debate and discussion doesn't have to involve any reading of studies. It can just involve talking about your values, whether they're religious values or civic values or secular values and where you where your priorities are. And I, and I think particularly if you end up having a conversation with someone who doesn't agree with you, it, it can actually be um, quite an eye-opening experience. One of the most eye-opening uh, debates on abortion I ever had was at a bar uh, next to Wrigley Field during a long rain delay uh, with someone who I didn't agree with and who opened my mind to a bunch of new arguments I hadn't heard. And I promise you, we had no textbooks or academic hmm. studies in front of us during that discussion. I, I forgive... Um Listeners to this podcast, forgive the plug for Intelligence Squared U.S., but a lot of the issues that David just mentioned, uh, universal basic income, immigration issues, minimum wage, um, we have a library of debates that we've done on these very specific topics. And, and actually, they are a good way to get caught up in at least some of the competing arguments on all of these issues. So I recommend them to our website. The last thing I want to talk with you about, David, is the concept of empathy. And it's a word that you've used in your columns. And one that actually occurred to me as you were talking about um, 
competing views on the abortion issue because there's an issue where each side tends really to think the other side is committing evil by holding the ideas that it does. And I'm personally not a believer that most people on both sides of that debate are evil for holding their views, but that it often comes down to a very, very strong ad hominem argument about the other person is bound for some version of hell or not. And that goes both ways, by the way. Talk to me about your concept of empathy having to play into this whole process of figuring out issues where you don't agree with the other side. Thank you for noticing that I like that word. Um, uh, I appreciate that because I really do like that word. It's something that I think all of us, including me, should spend more time thinking about. Um, I think when you are able to um, or try to put yourself in someone else's situation and ask yourself, why is it that they have the values that they do? And why is it that they may have come through the decisions and the opinions that they have? It can uh, really help you uh, think about this not in black or white ways, but more nuanced ways. And I do think that's why it is healthy to uh, have in your life people who have different political opinions than you, even if you don't spend that much time talking politics with them, Mm -hmm. even if you spend only a little, because you're going to think these are good people. Um, And and if you think they're good people, even if you're not going to have a fine-grained debate about about whether the minimum wage should be $15 or $11, you come to understand that people can have a real variety of opinions and still be really good people. And I think there's then this less important value of empathy for journalists, which I'll be really brief about, which is, I think one of the best things we as journalists can do is be empathetic to our readers, which is constantly put ourselves in our readers' shoes and say, am I explaining this in a way that my readers can understand? And I try to do that constantly. Am I writing for my sources and my fellow journalists or my readers? And it relates to this discussion because it's also the way you persuade people of something. If you are talking to people in their own language rather than your language, you're much more likely to actually have an effect on how they think about something. On our debate nights, we know immediately whether we've changed minds or not. Uh, Do you know – do you have that sense of whether you've changed a lot of minds out there during your your year of being an opinion writer? I don't. Um, I will tell you that some of the most – gratifying email I get is, hey, um, I appreciate you writing about this. It caused me thinking about it in a new way. Um, I also would say that the times I'm hardest on myself are when I try to persuade people of something. And it's clear to me from the feedback that I just didn't persuade many people. Mm -hmm. Um, So I mentioned before that I think that a lot of the school reform has been quite successful. And I wrote a column about that. And it was clear from my emails that that I was just hearing from a lot of liberals who thought I hadn't persuaded them at all. And I thought to myself, well, I didn't do a good enough job there. And next time I need to go back and think about how I can write about that in a different way to try to give them some empathy for why, why, although I share their overall goals and am passionate about them, I've come to a different place in, in how to get there. Once again, David Leonhardt's piece is called A Summer Project to Nourish Your Political Soul. It's at the New York Times website, and there's also a link on our website. Obviously, I recommend it. We would love to hear from you about this topic and also about this series of our podcast on the quality of discourse. Who else do you think I should be talking with and about what? We'd love to hear it from you via our website at 
iq2us.org. And another thing I want to remind you of, iq2us is a growing concern, but it is a nonprofit organization. We depend on the support of listeners. Let me just say this right now. Small donations count, and I appreciate them bigly. If you'd like to help give another little push to helping fix the way we talk to each other, please consider texting the word DEBATE to 797979, and you'll get a link that will help you donate your dollar or dollars. It's your choice, but be part of us. It would mean a lot to me. And I want to say, David Leanhart, thank you so much for joining us. This was fantastic. Thank you. And time to roll credits. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman of Intelligence Squared U.S. Clea Chang is chief operating officer. Leah Mathau is vice president of programming. Jeannie Park is director of research and content development. Rob Christensen is our podcast producer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>